Now, this morning I invite you to take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to Matthew's Gospel. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, and we want to read verses 36 through 46. Will you please stand in honor of the Word of God? You follow along as I read. This is a very unique passage. And as we will soon see as we read through this, that as we dig into it, uh, we are standing on holy ground. You follow along in your Bibles, the words will be on the screen as well. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, Oh, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not enter into or fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. And he went away a second time and prayed, My father, oh my father, if it is possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. And so he left them and he went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. And then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise! Let us go. Here the betrayer comes. Lord Jesus, speak to our hearts. In your matchless name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. As we continue our series on pursuing God in prayer, last week we discovered that prayer is not only profitable and powerful, Today we want to understand another dimension of prayer, and that is that prayer is not only powerful and profitable, prayer is painful. In prayer we wrestle with God over the issues of life that all of us face from day to day. We agonize in prayer. And yet very few of us understand what it means to be in agony in prayer. Leonard Ravenhall in his classic book, While Revival Terries Observes, quote, The church has many organizers, but few agonizers. Many who pay, but few who pray. Many resters, but not wrestlers. Many who are enterprising, but few who are interceding. 
Ties may build a church, but tears will give it life. That's the difference between the modern church and the early church. Our emphasis is on paying. Theirs was on praying. When we have paid, the place is taken. When they had prayed, the place was shaken. Unquote. The pain of prayer is no uh, more clearly seen than in the life of the Lord Jesus as he agonizes here in Gethsemane over this cup of suffering of which he is about to partake. Beginning in verse 36, the scripture says, And then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and I pray. We need to understand the Lord's mindset, first of all, at this time. The cross is weighing very heavily on his mind. Already he's been seeking to prepare the disciples for this moment in time where he, the Son of Man, would be betrayed and hang on a crude old cross to pay for the sins of mankind. He says in chapter 26, beginning in verse 2, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Later on, when he is with his beloved disciples in the upper room, these individuals in whom he had vested his life, for at least three years, he observes the Passover, but then he attaches new meaning to the bread and to the cup, and he reminds the disciples that he himself, the Lamb of God, is going to become the Passover Lamb who will lay down his life for every human being. Those born in the past, present, and future. It's a heavy load that he carries. <clears throat> you see this in verse 26, 27. While they were eating, Jesus took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, Take, eat, this is, notice, my body. My body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is, notice, my blood. Put a circle around. My blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so his mindset, he is consumed with thoughts about what the Father is asking him to do. And following the meal, his conversation is one-on-one -on -one with his disciples. He walks with them to the Mount of Olives. And again, he speaks about his impending and forthcoming death. Verse 31, he said, This night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And then you'll note in the following verses, verses 33 and 34, he relates to a disbelieving Peter that no matter what he says, he says he will never ever forsake the Lord. He looks Peter in the eye and he says, before this night is over, you will disown me, you will deny me. And now after this takes place, Jesus 
and Peter and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, are together. The other eight have all fallen away. They have no longer been with him. And the four enter the gates of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives for one purpose, and that is to pray and to garner the inner strength necessary to face what each of them are just about to face. They need to enter that inner strength necessary to resist temptation, and in the case of Christ, to carry out the will of the Father that weighs so heavily upon Him. You remember that Jesus and the Father and the Spirit are all one. They have enjoyed this, this incredible fellowship from eternity past. They always have been. There was no point of beginning for the Godhead. They always were. They always will be. And now Jesus, as he looks at what he's about to experience, he is overwhelmed with the reality of it all. And so he takes these three, Peter, James, and John, his, his inner circle, the individuals that he has depended upon, he takes them with them, with him, and they enter the garden. And as is his pattern throughout his life, he did so for one reason, and that is to pray. To pray. It's very interesting throughout the Gospels, we see that at the turning point moments in Christ's life, Whenever he was facing a challenge, whenever he was uh, going to encounter something that was very unique and meaningful, he would spend sometimes hours in prayer with his father. Sometimes he would spend an entire night in prayer. For example, this happens at his baptism in Luke 3 and verse 21. It happens again before he chooses the twelve in Luke chapter 6 and verse 12. It happens again when the multitudes desire to make him king in Matthew 14, 23 and on the Mount of Transfiguration in Luke 5, 28. We find that in these turning point moments the Lord spends hours, yes, nights in prayer as he pours out his heart to his heavenly Father. And the praying of Jesus, I believe, reaches an agonizing climax here in the Garden of Gethsemane. And as I've already said, we're standing on holy ground. As we witness the Savior of the world wrestling, agonizing over this cup of suffering of which he is about to partake to fulfill the will of his Father. Now, I want us to notice very carefully, first of all, the reality of agonizing prayer. Verse 37, he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him and began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and watch with me. Underscore those words, sorrowful and troubled. 
the burden that is on Christ's heart as he serves his disciples, that first communion, when he attaches new significance to the bread and the cup, this overwhelming sense that he's about to experience this horrendous cup of suffering, it's now as he's in the garden, what began there when he was with his disciples alone in the upper room, this consciousness of, of having to bear the sin of the world becomes even heavier and heavier and heavier on his mind. And the text says that he was troubled. Literally means to be sorely dismayed. It's a, it's a word that describes an unexpected calamity. It is though Christ in his humanness is already experiencing the nails piercing his hands and the spear in his side, even before he goes to the cross. The consciousness that he is about to be made sin for us is so overwhelming. He is troubled. He is deeply distressed. And he's alone in the garden. The parallel account in Mark chapter 14 reads that he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. That is, very depressed. The word troubled there in Mark 14 is descriptive of a person who is so distraught he is borderline on insanity. The text tells us that his soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. As he looks into this cup of suffering, he is overwhelmed with what he is just about to experience. And he looks into that cup and he's repulsed by what he sees. The cross weighs so heavily upon him. He's overwhelmed with sorrow even to the point of death. The prospect of Calvary is like a crushing burden that the Savior of the world is carrying. In Luke's account of Christ's agonizing prayer in Gethsemane, we see an even more intense picture of the wrestling of Christ as he prays. In Luke twenty-two forty-four, the Bible says, in being in anguish or agony, he prayed more earnestly. And that phrase in anguish really describes the drama that is about to unfold as Christ wrestles with this cup. It's very interesting that that word anguish or agony is the very same word that the Apostle Paul uses in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 12 where he encourages Christians to fight the good agony the good anguish of faith he repeats it in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 7 I have fought the good agony this anguish agony very same word and in secular Greek literature the phrase in anguish or agony describes a severe inner struggle a battle that is raging We need to understand at this particular moment, Jesus is confronting the enemy. Satan did everything he could to get Christ to bypass the cross. 
Just stop and think about this for a minute. He tried to abort Christ even before he was born. That bumpy road to Bethlehem, Mary on a donkey, about to deliver. This was an attempt to the enemy to do away with Jesus. Remember when he's on the Sea of Galilee with his disciples? They're all sleeping in the boat. This storm comes up, and these seasoned seamen are so absolutely blown away by what's happening, they are terrified. And they wake up Jesus, and they say, Lord, don't you care that we perish? And the Bible says that Jesus gets up, and he rebuked the wind. Very same word that is used when Jesus casts out demons. There was a demonic attack to destroy the Son of God at that moment. And we could go on and on today. Jesus is in a battle of his life. The enemy is throwing everything at him. And he looks at this cup that he is about to partake of. And he is simply overwhelmed. The battle is so great. Notice that Luke tells us that his sweat was like great drops of blood falling to the ground. The agony of praying... Jesus breaks out in a great sweat. The agony is so great, he feels the weight of the cross already upon him, and his blood is already being poured out for the sins of the world, even before he actually experiences it. This is what he is wrestling with in Gethsemane. And as the reality of suffering and as our sin substitute becomes more vivid in our Lord's mind, he agonizes. He is wrestling. There is a spiritual battle raging within him. And prayer is the only resource that our Lord has as he faces the crisis of Calvary. And he falls on his face. And he prostrates himself before the Father. And he says, Father, if it is possible, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Is there any other way? Is there any other plan that you have? Oh, my Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me the reality of suffering as our sin substitute becomes so vivid in his mind and he sweats great drops of blood it's very interesting that the writer to the Hebrews comments on this in Hebrews chapter 5 verses 7 to 9 we see even more details of our Lord's agonizing prayer. It says in that text, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions, notice, with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Let us never ever forget 
the agony that Jesus goes through to purchase our salvation. He experiences the wrath of the enemy. He, he experiences terrible sense of absolute aloneness. Have you ever felt that way? Where you are absolutely, totally alone and you are agonizing over what you need to do next and you don't even know which way to turn. This is Jesus in Gethsemane. It's so easy for us to sing and worship about the death of Jesus and the resurrection. We forget what it cost Him. It cost Him everything. We cannot push that away from our thinking. Now it's significant also in this passage that he requests Peter and James and John to go with him. He encourages them to watch and pray. You see, their crises are also close at hand. They're about to be tempted. They are going to face their own crisis. But instead of praying in agony, as does our Lord, what does he find his colleagues to be doing? Sleeping. Three times he asks them to watch and pray with him. Knowing that they are sharing in the next few days some of the very same crisis that he is facing in going to Calvary. But where he succeeds, they fail. You see this in verse 40, verse 43, and verse 45. What do we do when we face the crises of life? Sometimes we put off the decision we know we make. Sometimes we close our eyes to the crisis and hope it'll go away. But not Christ. When he faces this incredible moment where he realizes he is about to become the sin bearer for the sins of the whole world, he prays. And though his friends forsake him, it's very interesting that in Luke's Gospel, chapter 22 and verse 43, he receives supernatural support from heaven. Notice, an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And no doubt the angel reminds Christ of the great promises of God and of his own glorious resurrection after going to the cross and the exaltation that he would experience because he was obedient even to the point of death where the Father would exalt him and give him a name which is above every other name. Christ faces the trauma of Calvary in agonizing prayer alone. Listen to me very carefully. There are some crises in life that we have to face alone. No one else can make the decision for us. We have to make those decisions in the 
loneliness of our own beings. But my friends, we're never alone because we have the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ who is with us. And just as that angel strengthened Christ, I believe the Lord has his secret angels to strengthen us as well. The Bible says the angel of the Lord, the psalmist put it this way, encamps around all those who fear him, who reverence him, and he delivers them. Number two, the relinquishment of self in agonizing prayer. You see this in verse 39, going a little further. He fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, O my Father, if it is possible, let this cup be taken from me. Yet, notice, not as I will, but as you will. Now, the question quite naturally arises as we read this is, What was in that cup that caused Christ to draw back from it in horror and to agonize in prayer that this cup be taken from him? What were the contents in that cup that made Christ sweat these incredible drops of blood as he wrestles with his will and the Father's will in the garden. And as we study the Gospels, we come to the conclusion that the cup is not the desertion of his followers. The cup is not the hatred of the murderous mob. The cup is not the sarcasm and scorn of the religious establishment. The cup is not his betrayal by a friend or his denial by a close associate. The cup isn't the knowledge of the fact that death is staring him in the face. What is it that was in the cup that causes Christ to agonize in ways that I don't think any of us can fully understand? Two realities. Number one, he looked into that cup and he sees your sin and mine. Christ knows that in order for us to be saved, He will have to assume our sin and carry our guilt. He has to become sin for us. The Scriptures puts it this way, the one who knew no sin, who was absolutely perfect and holy, the one who never ever committed a sin, became, he literally becomes sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The prophet Isaiah talked about this in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 6. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and here it is, underline it in chartreuse, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The writer to the Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews 2.9. Christ had to taste death for every single one of us. Don't let this get by too quickly this morning. For the Son of Man to satisfy the demands of a holy God, 
He had to take our guilt to himself. He had to drink the cup. There was no other way. This was the only plan that the Father had to provide salvation and redemption for those who had fallen into sin because of that sin nature that all of us are born with. What does that mean? He became sin for us. The one who was absolutely holy became unholy. The one who never told a lie became a liar and a cheat. The one who never ever committed adultery became an adulterer. The sin of the whole world is laid upon Jesus. And he looks into that cup and he says, oh, the awfulness of sin. You see, we, 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 you don't hear much about sin anymore. It's a mistake. It's a, a veering off the road. Sin is what drove the nails in Jesus' hands. Sin. He looks into that cup and he sees the sin of the world and he's, he's taken back by it. It's the awfulness of sin that he sees in that cup that causes him to agonize in prayer. I mean, Jesus also had the power <laughs> at his disposal as deity to destroy all the forces of hell and the enemy. So like the songwriter put it, he called, called 10,000 angels to rescue him. But he doesn't do that as he looks into that cup of suffering. And the more he realizes the awfulness of sin and battles in prayer, he sees you and me. He says, oh, Father, not, your, not my will, but yours be done. The words of the Father, I submit to your sovereign plan. I surrender to you. In other words, Father, you win. I submit to you. And in submitting his, the Father's will and relinquishing his own desires, Jesus purchases our salvation and forgiveness. And because of this selfless act of love, he is presently in a position of glory and honor. At this moment, he is at the Father's own right hand, making intercession for one of us. The Bible says, if anyone sin, what? We have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. It's because in seeing the awfulness of sin, he looks beyond that, and he sees how much we need a Savior. And he relinquishes his will to the Father. Sometimes God asks us to do things that are painful. 
Sometimes he asks us to do things that don't make sense from a human point of view. And it's in those moments that we need to be agonizing in prayer, as did our Lord. So the first thing he sees in that cup is the awfulness of sin. The second thing he sees is the awareness of experiencing separation from his Father. Now, don't let this get by too quick this morning. From eternity past, Jesus has been one with the Father and the Holy Spirit. That blessed Godhead, they had no point of beginning, no point of ending. But Jesus, as he looks into that cup and understands that when the sin transfer is made, when he takes all the sin in his body, for that one moment in time, the Father turns his back on the Son. And you'll remember Jesus' words from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is that that he's looking at and he's wrestling at in prayer. To be separated as he takes on our sins, again, was almost more than the Lord Jesus could bear. And yet he says what? Not my will, but your will be done. And then lastly, I want you to note the resoluteness because of agonizing prayer. Notice verse 46. He says, rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. As we go through this passage, we understand the reality of agonizing prayer. He relinquishes himself to fulfill the Father's will. And now he is ready to face Calvary with new result of resoluteness and strength. Verse 46, rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. He's, he's wrestled. He's come to the conclusion that he is going to do the Father's will, even though it is painful and it causes him incredible agony. But in wrestling with prayer, he he has gained a new resolve. And now what he was once cowering away from, he's ready to to do. And in the words of Todd Beamer, that doomed 9-11 flight over Pennsylvania, who said, let's roll. That's what Christ says, let's roll. I'm ready to face my betrayer head on. I'm ready to do it. What at one time he he, he doesn't want to do. Now, all of a sudden, there is a new resolve and resoluteness to do it all the way. That, that, that's, that's, that's amazing. Time of prayers pass. The time of agony is over. Now there's a time for action. And it's very interesting on those Passover evenings, no doubt Christ, as he looks over the city, he sees the mob gathering. He knows that they're going to be coming up those Mount of Olives and pretty soon he's going to be confronting them and he says, I'm ready to go. (laughs) I'm resolute. I'm going to fulfill the Father's will no matter the cost. Friends, when we fall down on our face before God in agonizing prayer, We can stand up to anything. 
any crisis, any difficulty that may be looking us straight on. In prayer we enter heaven so that we may face the battles here on earth. And what he cowers from initially, the awfulness of sin, the awareness of being separated from his father, he now resolutely pursues. He goes after it with all of his heart. Nothing or no one can stop him now. Everything has been settled. You know, there's something about settling who's number one in our lives. It transforms us. There's no more this fighting our will and God's will. We are surrendered completely and totally to Him. And when that happens, no matter what the enemy throws at us, we will be able to conquer in the strength of our living Lord. And at Calvary, Jesus fulfills the Father's plan. And when he had drunk that cup of suffering, and when the sin transfer had been made, Jesus shouts from the cross, It stands finished! There's nothing more that can be added to the finished work of Christ. You can't do enough good deeds to measure up to what Christ has provided for you. He has paid it all. <laughs> it stands finished the work of salvation is complete and Jesus Christ is alive and well and at that moment he is making intercession he's our advocate amazes me how many folks today are preoccupied with their adversary oh there's a spiritual battle going on the adversary is at work hey folks our Lord is the advocate. He's greater than our adversary. He has partaken of all the sin of this world. He has borne it in His body. He's experienced this incredible moment where the Father turns His back on the Son. And in resoluteness, He goes after it. That's what God's looking for from us. He wants us to go after what he's calling us to do. Have you been to Gethsemane recently? You see, it's in Gethsemane when we wrestle with our will and God's will. Have you been there? In Gethsemane. We die to our dreams and our plans. And it's at Gethsemane that we find new resolve to do what God is calling us to do, no matter how painful it may be. Friend, whatever the Holy Spirit nudges you to do today, I would encourage you to do it. Stop making excuses for living outside the will of God. 
I don't know what God's asking you to do. Maybe you need to take some initiative and heal broken relationships. Maybe there's a marital conflict or a situation in the home that has been going on for a long time. You've never really settled it. I don't know what God's nudging you to do. But my friend, Jesus paid it all for you. And he is desirous that we as his people surrender to him. Stop keeping a scorecard. Stop pointing fingers at one another. And lay it all at the foot of the cross. At Gethsemane, we wrestle in prayer, but we wrestle alone. There are some things that some of us need to deal with in our lives right now. We've expected others to come to us. We've expected others to reach out to us. What is God calling us to do as members of his family? Let's just spend a few quiet moments in prayer. And then we're going to partake of the, the bread and the cup. Just spend these quiet moments in prayer.